6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of 2 Kings, chapters 4 through 7. One of the things you'll learn when you get to Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is making his opening statements at, at the, at the uh, synagogue at Nazareth, he announces his mandate from Isaiah 61, and then he goes through a little sermon. And uh, he mentions there were no, there were many lepers in Israel, but only one that God healed. That was Naaman. Jesus makes reference to this and tells us something else. There were no other lepers. This wasn't just an incident. There are many lepers here. No, this was the only one. Jesus tells us. He also says there are many widows in Zarephath, but to only one was Elisha sent, and so forth. And from that sermon, they interrupt it and they try to throw him off a cliff. And one of your assignments I'd give you to think about is to read Luke 4 and figure out why were they up so upset by those examples that they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. Now, he slipped away, of course. I'll give you the answer. Both examples that Jesus chose were Gentiles. The widow at Zarephath was in Sidon. Naaman was a Syrian. And they were distinctive in that God reached them. And uh, that offended the arrogance of the Pharisees in the synagogue, enough that they tried to kill him over that sermon. Check Luke 4. You'll find there's a f- it's full of some interesting surprises. But this, this leprosy of uh, uh, Naaman is one of the, the uh, um, examples that Jesus alludes to. Walter Martin used to preach a sermon about the foolishness of God from 1 Corinthians. You know, that the, 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 the foolishness of God is wiser than men and so forth. He says, how can you use the term foolishness in God in the same sentence? Then he used to go through the scripture and notice how God always seems to reach to the weird things to solve his problems. He saves eight people and the entire world's going to get wiped out. He saves eight people by having him build this barge. He uh, uh, has uh, Samson slaughter the Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. You, know, you go right, go through this. It's, all, it's interesting. You actually go right through the scripture and notice how God always seems to go to these weird things. And here... Here is Naaman, the head of the Syrian army. He's supposed to wash himself in his muddy water. See, the water, the Jordan is the point. Muddy water is the point. God is the point. And if you go throughout the whole, whole scripture, God always seems to choose deliberately the foolish things of the world to put to naught the wisdom of the wise and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in his presence. And what's the most foolish thing of all in God's climax that he's going to save the universe by a cross that was erected in Judea 2,000 years ago. 18th verse of 1 Corinthians 1. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. The preaching of the cross is what? Foolishness. To whom? To them that are lost. But unto us who are saved is the power of God unto salvation. It's interesting that the world is divided into two groups. Those that are saved and those that are not. And what 
divides them into which category is the cross? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. Anyway, uh, this, this, uh, Walter always used to use the name in, in his sequence. He always used this when I remember it so vividly. Well, now let's talk about Elisha and the Syrians. Um, this, <laughs> this is one of my favorite chapters, especially with a war going on. You'll see why in a minute. And the sons of the prophet said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell is too straight. Oh, there's a little incident here that comes first, and then we'll get into the, the main part of this. But anyway, the sons of the prophet said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with, thy, with thee is too straight for us, is too small for us. And let us go, we pray thee, unto the Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make a, us a place where we may dwell. And he said, Go ye. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down wood. And as one was felling a beam, an axe head fell into the water. And he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. The man of God said, Where did it fall? He showed him the place. He cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. It floats. This is the floating axe thing. And he said, Take it up thee. And he put out his hand and took it. Then the king of Syria... Now, that's just a little incident that the chronicler puts in here. Uh, apparently happened. It became a, a famous anecdote about uh, Elisha. It's included in the Holy Word. But now we get to the meat of this thing. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel. Here he goes again. The king of Syria is always against the northern kingdom, it seems. And he took counsel with the servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. So in other words, this, this is... It's using this, this is just one of a series of cases. The king of Syria warded against Israel, he took counsel of his servants, saying, In such and such a place will be my camp. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. In other words, Elisha tips off the king as to what the Syrians are doing. And this doesn't happen once, it happens again and again. The king of Israel sent unto the place which the man of God told him, and warned him of, and saved himself there. Not once or twice. In other words, this wasn't just a scattered incident. This happened frequently enough that the king of Syria is getting upset. Verse 11, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. He called his servants and said to them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? See, he assumes as somebody on his staff that is tipping off the king of Israel. Because every time he makes a move, the king of Israel knows about it in advance. So he naturally assumes there's a, a mole on his staff. There's somebody there that's somehow feeding the information to the northern kingdom. And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. See, uh, uh, 2 Kings 6.12 is the first recorded phone tap in the Bible. And so, in other words, he, he explains to the king of Syria that Elisha the prophet knows everything that's being said in your bedchamber. So he said, Go and spy out where he is, that I may send forth and fetch him. I was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Dothan is the little village that uh, Elisha is uh, domiciled in. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and tanks and mechanized units and a great host, liberal translation, and and, uh, they came by night and compassed the city about. So get the picture. They slip in by night, so in the morning, they are surrounded with all this uh, 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 military might. The servant gets up in the morning. It doesn't say Gehazi, by the way. See, Gehazi's got, he's got leprosy. He's history. Unnamed servant here. When the servant of the man of God was risen early, 
and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. Understand, chariots were the tanks of that day. They were feared. And horses too. And so the servant gets up early to do his duties. He looks outside and he sees these guys out there revving their engines, you know. And he says to the servant, says to him, Alas, my master, how, what shall we do? He's panicked. Understandably. What does Elisha say? Fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And I assume the servant's thinking there's always somebody who just doesn't get the message. I mean, they're out there. They're real. I can see the gleam on their, on their armaments. Verse 17, Elisha prayed. And as Elisha does this, by the way, I visualize him being a little impatient maybe, being sort of frustrated a little bit with his servant. Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. There was, you know, let him in on it, Lord. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and guess what he saw? Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. This is a very, very key little verse that uh, uh, gives us a glimpse. Only a few places in the Scripture do we get a glimpse of the real world. You and I live in a physical simulation, a subset of the reality. And... Uh, uh, there are uh, there are some very interesting ways to try to get that concept across to you. Um, I'm I'm fond of a uh, a popular movie. It's not a religious movie. It's just a science fiction thing called The Thirteenth Floor. But it gets across this idea of living in a simulated virtual environment. And uh, uh, it's too bad that movie wasn't more popular because it'd be easy to use that as a way of explaining some of this. But the point is, clearly, we know from quantum physics that we live in a digital simulation. And that's the reality of, of 21st century science, is to realize we live in a digital simulation. And the real reality is, is, includes dimensions that we know not of. We know of uh, three spatial dimensions in time, four dimensions we can directly sense. We know there are six that we can't, can only be inferred by indirect means. So there are ten dimensions at least in total. And so one of the things that we get glimpses of from time to time, and this is one of the places that we could be surrounded with military might of the Lord that's invisible to us, but protecting us. And uh, as you in your notes for Second uh, Kings uh, 6.17, you might pencil the margin, Daniel chapter 10. There's another one of these interesting glimpses of the super world. The world, uh, we sometimes call it the spiritual world. That's an uncomfortable term for me because that makes it sound sort of fuzzy, fuzzy, or sort of indefinite. No, it's more definite than we are. And uh, uh, but uh, where where this messenger is sent to Daniel, he prays he prays for 21 days, and after 21 days, the messenger comes to give him what'll turn out to be chapter 11 and 12. But he, he points out that he, he took 21 days to get here because he was he had to fight off a couple of major demonic hosts, one called the king of Persia and one called the king of Greece, the prince, excuse me, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And we realize we're not talking about the literal. Uh, rulers on the earth in those days. We're talking about the powers behind them. And uh, you need to study that carefully. It's one of those glimpses that we should be conscious of the fact that we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. And Paul elaborates on this for us in Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And and, and the, the Greek terms he's using there are ranks of angels. 
So we need to, that's, that's the real war that's going on. Now we're engaged in a war right now. But we need to understand behind the scenes, invisible to our radars and reconnaissance satellites and what have you, is spiritual forces that are a part of the dynamic going on. Let's move on. It says, anyway, when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, this, we're not through the Syrians yet, by the way. Uh, when they came down, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said, this is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. <laughs> so here's these, the enemy host, they're blinded. They've got no choice but to follow the leading of Elisha. Elisha says, follow me, and I will bring you to the man you seek. Who are they seeking? They're seeking the king of Israel. Where is he going to take him? He's going to take him to the capital of the northern kingdom. But see, he led him to Samaria. <laughs> it came to pass when they were coming to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Here's the whole bunch now surrounded by their adversaries. The king of Israel said to Elisha, when he saw them, My father, what, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And Elisha said, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Now, what's interesting, there's a background part of this that you need to understand you see, eating under one's roof implies a covenant of peace. And we're indebted to uh, Herbert Livingston's book, The Pentateuch and Culture and Environment, for this, uh, the whole background of this. See, the Arameans were now bound by custom not to attack a friend who extended his gift of hospitality and protection. And uh, for this reason, the Arameans, the Syrians, uh, stopped attacking for a while. They eventually will. In fact, uh, in, a, in, a, in another verse, they're going to be at it again. But there's, a, there's quite an interval of time here. Uh, to pass, first of all. It came to pass after this, after some time. Then Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his horse and went up and besieged Samaria. So they're still at it. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and a fourth part of a dab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. In other words, these incredible prices are ways of dramatizing the, the preciousness with which food, and water for that matter, is, is, is critical. We talk a lot about oil politics, but at the same time, in the Middle East, water is even more precious. And uh, so we need to understand that. And uh, the, the donkey's head is one of the least nourishing and most repulsive parts of the animal. And it's unclean for the Israelites, by the way. And yet it became a highly valued commodity because that's all that was around. Very, very, very expensive. For about two pounds of silver. And uh, 80 shekels, I guess. And... Uh, uh, now, this, this word for dove's dung is translated that way in most, several of the versions. The, the NIV just calls it seed pods. I don't know what on basis I've been able to track down. You know, there's obviously some scholastic debate as to what the Hebrew term really means. But uh, the Masoretic supports the King James the way it's here. And uh, anyway, in any case, it was, whatever it was, it was normally for animal fodder. Cost five shekels. Uh, that is two ounces of silver for it. The way of dramatizing how severe the famine is. As the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help me, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, whence can I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? So the king is dis dis discouraged too. He can't help much. The king said unto him, What aileth thee? 
She answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. They're down to eating the children. So he boiled my son and did eat him, and I said to her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him, and she hath hid her son. It came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes and he passed by upon the wall and people looked and behold he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so and more also to me if the head of Elisha the son of Shaphat shall stand on him this day. Now it's too tragic. He's blaming, I don't know why he's blaming Elisha. It's not his fault. It's that the fault is uh, that he's not listening to Elisha. It's his apostasy that's bringing this upon the land. But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him, and the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See how this son of a murderer hath sent, hath sent to take away mine head? Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he had talked with him, behold, the messenger came down to him, and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? So that's where we we're going to quit for tonight, but I thought we would just take one short little chapter to finish off the story, okay? Let's take chapter 7, continue this, the theme on this famine. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria, in the capital. That's astonishing. In one day it's going to change. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make the windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. So he's expecting skepticism, and Elijah nails him. You may see it with your eyes, but you're not going to eat from there. We'll see what happens to him before this chapter's over. There were four leprous men at the... Now, changing the, changing the scene, but same theme. There were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate of the city. And they said one to another, Why sit here, we here, until we die? See, with a famine, no one's bringing them food. That's what they're dependent upon as lepers. And obviously they're not getting any. So what are we going to do? Just sit here until we die? If we say we'll enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. If we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come, let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. And if they save us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. Notice what have we got to lose? Okay? Pretty infallible logic in some respects. So they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of the Syrians, there was no man there. Here's the whole camp with all its provisions, and there's nobody there. For the Lord hath made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots. We don't know how the Lord did this. There's all kinds of speculation. We have no idea. Somehow the Lord caused them to believe they heard the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said to one another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. By the way, it wasn't the Egyptians. That's a mistranslation, but that's not critical to our purpose here. Let's move on. Wherefore, they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents, their horses, their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. So somehow they had this hallucination. And they split. When these lepers were come to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried then silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. They've, they've found a treasure hunt here. They said to one another, We do not well. This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. 
Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. They want to go back and let the king of Israel know about all this. So they came and called to the porter of the city. And they told him, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of a man, but horses tied, asses tied, the tents as they were. And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house within. The king arose in the night and said unto the servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. And they know that we are be hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, See, he's, he's, this guy's paranoid, probably with good reason, but anyway, um, they've they gone out and they hide themselves in the field, saying, When they shall come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. So he thinks this whole thing's a trap. That's understandable, really. And one of the servants answered and said, Wait a minute, let's, let's take some, I pray thee, uh, five of the horses that remain and that are left in the city, and behold, there is all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say that there are even as all the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed. Let us send and see. They therefore took chariot, two chariot horses. That's four, in other words, not five. And the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. And they went after them unto the Jordan, and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. The messengers returned and told the king, and the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died, as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king had come down to him. Remember that was the young man that was skeptical? And Elisha said, uh, you're going to see it, but you're not going to eat of it. And indeed, he gets trampled in the crowd here and dies, just as, as, the, as the prophet had predicted. It came to pass, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel, and a measure of fine flour for a shekel, shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And uh, the Lord answered the man of God and said, Now... And that Lord answered the man of God, saying, Now, behold, if the Lord should make the windows of heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. This is just a recap of what he would prophesied. And so it fell out unto him, and the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. And so ends chapter 7, and uh, our session for this evening. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. I think we need to, uh, this is a concatenation of the episodes, but the theme that ties it all together is the painful penalty of apostasy and disobedience. And uh, the great tragedy is they have all these troubles, famines and whatever, and uh, because they have abandoned two centuries of heritage. Uh, Jeroboam has instituted calf worship and they've gone to paganism. They've re- rejected the God who loves them and cares for them and so dramatically demonstrates his reality and they ignore it or explain it away. And we look at that and we can't help but shake our heads in amazement that they are so um, stiff-necked and uh, stubborn and uh, blind. And yet it's interesting We have the benefit of their experience plus many more centuries of further experience. We have the Word of God and we have the revelation of God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So we are even more accountable than they were. And that should sober us. We should realize that too much is given, much is required. And God means what He says and says what He means. And uh, I can't help but recall right now the words of Thomas Jefferson, about our nation. He says, I tremble for my country when I realize God is just. 
and his justice will not sleep forever. If God was that um, jealous of his prerogatives in the, with respect to Israel, can you imagine how much more jealousy will be of his prerogatives with respect to the way we treat his son Jesus Christ who died for us? God is, is, is his salvation is by grace as a gift and yet he calls us to obedience and we don't understand what that means. Let's do by our hearts. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of Elisha. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit you will convict us too of our sins, of presumption and ingratitude, our failure to give you priority in the things of our lives, day to day, moment by moment. We confess it as sin before you and ask for your cleansing and forgiveness. And help us, Father, to know your heart. Help us, Father, to be drawn closer to you. Help us, Father, to be more fruitful stewards. Help us to be sensitive to what you would have us do in the days that remain. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Above all, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. (laughs) The ultimate foolishness that will judge the entire universe. We thank you, Father, for bringing us to this point in time. We thank you, Father, that in your kingdom are no accidents or coincidences, that we're all here right now by your divine appointment. But, Father, we would ask that through your word and through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to more fully apprehend what it is you'd have of us individually in the days that remain. Help us, Father, to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Help us, Father, to be more pleasing in thy sight as we do commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Musler, teaching through the book of 2 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.